talk about I don't know. And I want to tell you just as a way of little introductory, um, I read this book by Phyllis Tickle called The Great Emergence, and she's a sociologist of religion, and she's awesome and amazing. Um, she just recently passed away, but I heard her speak one time, and she was like, she was like 75, and she spoke to this young crowd, and uh, she has this like amazing grandmother to her, like, like always encouraging, you know, like, you, you people are changing the world. And I was like, oh, it's so lovely to hear grandma telling you you're changing the world. Phyllis Tickle, you're amazing. She is everybody's grandma. And she wrote this book um, that basically short and succinct, and she talked about the way Christianity is changing. And she had this really beautiful way of talking about it. She said that every 500 years in Christianity, Christianity goes through a yard sale. And with that simple analogy, she tells you about what happened in the first 500 years and the great monasticism and how just before the Middle Ages happened, Christianity sort of takes all its treasures, all its creeds and great confessions and hides itself in the monasteries of the ancient world before all the warfare of the Middle Ages. And then she talks about the next 500 years being the great schism, where the Eastern and Western churches split from one another. And, and notice um, that these are times of incredible economic and political upheaval, times where the, the mindset of people is changing towards the church and towards the world. And then there's the one we're all most familiar with, the Great Reformation, and where Martin Luther hangs up the 95 Theses and challenges the Catholic Church, and we're, we remember that one most well. And then what she says, the period we're in right now, which she calls the Great Emergence. And the way she tells the story is quite hopeful, that often things have to die for new things to be born. And often, as human beings throughout time and history, we change, we grow. Our, our thoughts on what this thing called Christianity, it morphs and it changes. And we're like this great river that's meandering our way towards greater love and greater knowledge of who God is. And so um, our world is going through some of the most cataclysmic changes ever in Christianity. And that's a good thing. That's an exciting thing. If, if you haven't thought about it, um, one way to think about it is all the media frenzy you see from the right-hand side, from the left-hand side, this cultural wars we seem to be caught up in on all sides. This is signs that something is being stirred, something new is being born. And so it is a, a fascinating time to be Christian. It's a fascinating time where everything is uh, being questioned and thought about in new ways. And we are the people that get to lead forward this amazing, incredible new charge. And so I think um, that little introduction helps you to understand a little bit about why um, we would say words like, I don't know, because this is a transformative time and things are being looked at in new ways. So will you pray with me? That was like just the intro beginning. We, here we go. <laughs> God, I thank you as always for this incredible community of people for the way we can come and uh, find your spirit here, sing our hearts out to you, the way we can be moved by the, and rooted and grounded by the deep liturgy, the way we can be challenged to go out into the world to be the people you've called us to be. Thank you for uh, the authenticity of the aches and pains that are in each of our hearts. I pray, God, that you would meet each one of us here, that you would transform our hearts you would expand us and shape us into, the, into your people. Help us, God, as we journey through this I Don't Know series. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Leadville, Colorado is the highest city in America. Over 10,000 feet, 
and it has this rich and beautiful history. In 1860s was the gold rush in there, and thousands upon thousands of people made their way to Leadville, Colorado. In 1870, only 10-year period, we found out the gold was busted, and so we went for the silver rush that they found in Leadville. And in this period of time, it was it was wild, wild west stuff. Thousands and thousands of people, shops were built, and uh, gambling facilities, and restaurants, and even brothels. And so with all this influx of people, you better have some churches in there as well. And churches were built in this period of time. And, um, and Stacy and I and my kids, we, we just a month ago went to Leadville because we had never seen this wild, wild west. And we wanted to say, this would be fun to check out and see with our kids. And it is rugged in Leadville, where, where the local people do not like you if you're not from there. You know what I mean? A real Colorado mountain town here. And we went and um, we just stumbled into, um, right off of the main drag, the, the Temple Israel Synagogue. And we walked in there just because, you know, what, what else do you do? And, and we're greeted by this nice man who tells us the history of this building. This small little church, um, you know, about half, maybe a fourth of the size of this building, this room we're in right now. And it, they told us about, in 1884, how all these Jewish settlers came to Leadville, which is fascinating fact in and of itself. And they came together and they built this church. So in 1884, they started to worship weekly in this synagogue, Shabbat services, uh, worshiping God and finding their way in this crazy, wild, ever-changing town. And for um, just about 20 years, this community stayed together. But as the gold and silver panned out, uh, the, these, primarily most of these Jewish immigrants were, were merchants. And so many of them made the move from Leadville to Denver when, as the town started to, the, the craze of the gold and the silver wore out. And what was fascinating to me is the space I was in. I'm, I'm looking up and, and it was all, of course, restored, this very building these incredible Jewish people were meeting, saying their prayers, and finding a grounding strength in this city to be the people they were called to be. And what was fascinating is this man's telling me the story, and he said, yeah, um, then after, after this, the synagogue was no more and we had to disband it, it was bought by a local mechanic. And a local mechanic and his family changed this building into a shop. And they changed, they uh, made radiators. They changed radiators. And so you can imagine this building then becomes a mechanic shop and a home for his family. And then about 20 years later, it changes to um, uh, literally uh, an apartment building for the miners in the town as the mining kicks up again. And they, they transform this same church building into these small little cubby holes where miners were able to live. Finally, Finally, um, in the middle of the 1950s, the Episcopalians bought this building because a proper church building should be used by some worshiping folk, right? And, and then um, lastly, though, the Episcopalians only lasted 20 years, and it's just an amazing, and it went back to apartments for the community as this town ebbs and flows. And finally, in the 1990s, the Temple Israel Foundation buys the building back, and over the last 10 years, they've completely restored it. So when you walk in Temple Israel, you see um, the, the Jewish merchants, all their worship stuff. They found tons of stuff as they were refinishing the building, as they were digging up outside the building. And it's amazing to me that in that place, these early Jewish settlers uh, on the wild, wild west in Colorado were there. And it made me think about um, these changes and, and the purpose of worship 
why they would gather, why they would put all this effort and energy to build a building to say, this is our community life. This is what we're going to be about and do together. And then it also, it also was interesting that in this hundred year time, this church had been five different things. And it, it notes to us also the change in the flow of all our lives, of how different we are. And so I've been thinking a lot about this I don't know and why we, this phrase is so resonant with us in this moment in history. And I've been thinking about the purpose of worship and what worship does for our lives, this spirituality that each of us hunger for deep in our life, to have something more than the material that grounds us, but something that inspires us something that brings out the very best of us so that we can love and act compassionately and have a sense of purpose in our, in our daily movement. And it made me think about Phyllis Tickle and these changes that are happening. And, and then it made me think about First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings is the story of how this tribe of Israelites become a nation. And so as a tribe becomes a nation, you got to have a king because that's what all the other nations do. And, but there's this minority report in Israel's history of they also had a king, but they had a temple. They had a place where people would go and worship, a place where spiritual lives were enhanced and inspired. And in this story, 1 Kings is, is hilarious to read because it tells you over and over again. It's, it reads like, uh, very simply, this king came to power and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and so he was no more. This king came to power and he did evil in the sight of the Lord again and again and again, but every once in a while, outshining from the Bible's pages comes a shining hero like Josiah. And Josiah was eight years old when he came to the kingdom. And this is what the Bible says about his story. He, he learns about the temple. The temple had been in disarray. It had been destructed. It went through these periods of change. And this is what the Bible says in 2 Kings 22, 11 through 13. Go up to the high priest Hilkiah and have him count the entire sum of money that has been brought into the collected from the people. Let it be given into the hand of the workers who have oversight over the house of the Lord. Let them give it to the workers who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters, to the builders, to the masons, and to them that use it to buy timber and quarried stone and repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked for them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. So out of all this time that's been left, he's like, we're going to have an audit is what's going on here. We're having an audit of what's going on in this ancient world temple, and we're going to give it to the people that have repaired that place. We're going to renew and change. This is a new moment. And then when they're in there renewing it and finding where this money has been and giving it to the local artists, local artists got the money. Holla, right? That's good. That's a good thing. Then all of a sudden, they find the book. It's the Bible. The, law, the written laws and this story of God's love for all the Israelites. And this is what happens. When the king heard the words of the book of law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded the priest Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Saphnan, Akbar of Micaiah, Saphan, the, the secretary, and the king's servant Asaiah, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and the people and for all Judea concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book to do accordingly to all that is written concerning us. Josiah becomes the reforming king. 
He sees the temple in disarray and he calls for an audit. He gives the local artists, the craftsmen, the chance to rebuild this place. And he uh, encounters once again that promise that goes throughout the Bible that God's people are supposed to be a blessing to all the nations. That our job is beyond this wall. Our job has always been for the world to bring hope where there is hopelessness, to bring love where there is lovelessness. And this king has this incredible turning, this moment where he sees so clearly that this worship space is only for outside the walls. It's for the community, but it's central to our community life. We like Josiah because he reminds us of courageous people like Pope Francis. Didn't see that coming, right? And Pope Francis, we love him because he is the only pope in the history to call an audit of the entire Vatican Bank. That is gutsy, gutsy. And he's the only pope in history to say, no, I won't live in that grandeur house that you've provided. I'm gonna live in a simple flat. Isn't that incredible? And then just last weekend he was here. You, you, heard, the, you heard the stories that get, get wind of, but you didn't hear the, the little things he did in his itinerary. So you heard about him going around in the White House on a golf cart, whoop-de-doo, right? Um, but the bigger things he did were amazing. And they show us about this turning about this shift, about this new way of being the church in the world. He did this. He met with farm workers and laborers. He visited the Philadelphia's largest jail and blessed these people. He blessed people who were helped by the Catholic charities, the lame, the broken, the lost, the down and out. This incredible Pope modeled for us all this shift that something is changing, something is new in the airwaves of Christianity. And that gets a huge amen, right? And so people like a really good friend of Tim and I's name, Craig Basarich, he can write things like this on Facebook. The day after Halloween, all the candy goes on sale. The day after Easter, all the chocolates go on sale. The day after Christmas, all the lights go on sale. Is all the Pope swag on sale now that he's not in D.C.? Because your boy is trying to get fitted with a Papi Francisco t-shirt, maybe a hat, and definitely a visor. (laughs) <laughs> so great, right? And you see, I, I think, um, I was thinking about like, like my joke two years ago. I was like, is there any major magazine the Pope hasn't been on the cover of? I mean, it's amazing. And it's not because of his attire, people. And it's not because of his great swaggy looks, right? This man is changing the face of how we think about what it means to be church, just like Josiah. And then there's that other reformer, About a thousand years later, Jesus, who uh, we know this story, this incredible story when Jesus comes to the temple towards the end of his ministry, and he says this, then he came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So this is the only episode in the gospel where Jesus is upset. He's filled with anger. I love, um, I love how people, you know, like I love the loving, kind, and compassionate Jesus. Like I really love that Jesus, but then this is a Jesus who is like, I am angry. <laughs> you know, and it's so funny because like we have to embrace, there is the loving Jesus, and then there's the, there's the I'm pissed off Jesus, right? And this, and this page is, is this incredible story, and, and you, you, you wonder, why are you so angry? 
And once again, it's, it's like the reformer Josiah. It's like the Pope. He's angry that this building, that temple had been turned into something that it shouldn't be. They were selling these indulgences to the poorest of the poor at a higher rate. They were selling these pigeons for the sacrificial system. And Jesus saw that what that was doing was keeping them away from their primary mission, to bless the world. So when Jesus says, my house should be a prayer for all nations, he's saying, make room. Make room in that temple for the people who need it most and focus yourself on what it means to care for the world. And so Jesus offers us this strong critique And so when I was thinking about all this this week, I was thinking about the American church and some of my experiences with it, and I was trying to think about why some of us, uh, myself included at times, are so confused about what we are doing. And so these kind of images came to mind. It's very Dale. It's very odd. Bear with me, right? So the church, as Jesus said, it's not a shopping center. It's not somewhere where we go and buy and sell. I mean, Jesus is clear. Um, It's not a retreat center. A couple years ago, I was, took a run in Laguna Beach, and I was there on vacation, and I was on Saturday morning, and I, I rounded the corner, and if you've been to Laguna Beach, it actually, um, it's kind of hard to run. You have to jump over some rocks, and there's little alcoves of the beach there, and right in this alcove, I looked out, and I saw this group of people, like, before it was in, like hot pinks, hot greens, crazy outfits, you know, and I was like, oh my gosh, and I heard this, like, laughing like obsessively, but not like, um, not like when you listen to uh, like Stephen Colbert laughing. Like it was like when you, um, when you hear like fake laughing and it's like this upsets your stomach a little bit, like someone's like really pressing it. And they had these big signs that said, we are the happy church. And I rounded the corner. I was like, oh no. And I was like, my like meter went off of like cult cult, cult, right? And the guy shakes my hand because they are really good. And he tells me a knock-knock joke right away. And then I, did, I was like, what world did I just step into, you know? And, and then he just laughed <laughs> like that. And I'm like, oh God, that is strange, people, strange. And, and I, as I started talking to him, like I couldn't get him to not smile, which th- then it kind of became a game, you know? And, um, but he started to tell me that this was how they retreated from the world. They, they, they were going to fake being happy no matter if they weren't. And I walked away like, oh, my God, that, that is strange. And I, I'm glad they're doing this. But, um, and, and I think sometimes in church we become this retreat center from the world. We, become, we sort of cut ourselves off from the realities. And that's no good because our spiritual lives are rooted in the world, in our families, in our vocations, in the neighborhoods and city streets that we live in. This, this place right here is meant to be the thing that inspires the, ca- the catalytic movement of our hearts to be who God has called us to be. And then there's um, the churches that I, I group into, the command center. These churches have authoritative voice on moral right and wrongs. They can be very political. If you've ever been to one of these churches, they tell you exactly what to believe. And we have that going on instead of inspiring the people to be what God has called them to be. And then there's the recreation center churches. We do a lot of good things, and we do them, and we do them, and we do them. We even have yoga classes, which I have nothing against yoga, right? But we do them without any why. And that seems to be the problem to me, without any reason why we would exist, why we would worship, why our spiritual lives would be enhanced. And then there's the entertainment center. Like one church I went to actually one time that gave away for Christmas 50 free iPads. 
And it was like, like my son thought it was really cool, but I started thinking in my mind, like, this is not a good message for kids, you know? <laughs> like, this is not a great message that this is what we do. And so there's that entertainment center. And then this one gets a little hard, but the, the community center. We provide a place for friendships and connections. And there's nothing wrong with the community center. That's one of the things we aspire to, but it's wrong without the why. It's wrong without acknowledging the sacredness within each one of us, the spirituality, and, and reminding ourselves we're for the world. We are for those people outside the walls who are hurting and for who are broken. And so um, when you look underneath all these beautiful scriptures from Josiah and then from, um, from Jesus, you have this like stirring call. And, and I think um, I'd say it this way, that it's the stirring call to know the why. The why of worship, why we come here. We come here because we get to be centered and grounded in God's love. We come here to remind us that the catalytic movement of our heart comes from the story of God. And this story is a story about love, love, love. And this story is what propels us and gives us meaning and gives us purpose. And, and I can't help thinking about the way we come and when we hear these songs, it's like our whole life is reoriented. We don't come here to retreat. We come here to prepare ourselves. It, it's, like, um, uh, it's, it's like base camp. This is base camp for what our weeks get to be about. This is the base camp. This is the grounding, the centering, the reorienting of our, our minds and our hearts to do the work of compassion in our world. I love what it says in Acts 1.8, but then you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. And every one of us, we are called to be for the world. And so what this means is something incredibly explosive, big idea. That means your vocations, what you give your time to, they become sacred. They become holy. These are the places where you're meeting people that need your love. Your neighborhoods, all of a sudden, like you have to be alert that you are the minister of your neighborhood. And you think about your families. You are the one that have this like divine responsibility to shape the heart of your kids. And the church is the place that inspires you, that continues to feed your soul so you can be what the world most needs. Now that is important. And so I think about my buddy. Uh, we're sitting in a bar, and it's one of those moments with a friend that's just, it's real deep, it's real honest. I hadn't connected with him in a long time, and we shared about our, our, our families, and we shared about our relationships, and we shared about our jobs, and, and then it got real, like one of those like, like, like manly deep times where he looks at me and says, Dale, I don't know what I believe anymore. And literally, like, his words were so truthful. They were so resonant. I was like, wow. And I, I felt myself holding back the tears as we talked. And so you know how when you have these great conversations with someone, like, they mull around in your mind for years and years, and you have, like, these great things to say back to them, but you couldn't in the moment. In the moment, it was just like, wow. So I've got four weeks of things to say to my friend now. Um, so, so what would I say to him about spirituality and the changing of the church? I think I'd say to him this. I'm sorry. I'm sorry on behalf of the church leaders. If churches have lost their vision, if they have stopped telling you the why, if they've kept your lives busier and busier and busier instead of opened you up to beauty and meaning in your very vocations, in your very families, I would say to my friend, I'm sorry. 
And then I would tell him about this great why. I would tell him the place where he could be centered and grounded, the place that could inspire and be catalytic for his soul. And so I remember uh, when I was a pastor in a small mountain town, when you finish your sermon, you go to the back of the hall because that's how they do it. And every person in a small town, they, they've got time in a small town. And they will tell you everything you, they think about your sermon. And that's how you get good. And, um, <laughs> and I remember how eye-opening it was because they would get, you know, they have a line. So they get really good at telling you in different ways. And I remember that whenever I would in this small town, whenever I would not be, give them the why, whenever I would not tell them that your lives are for the world, this is matters, I would get those nice reminders of where we're headed. Don't forget the why. Don't forget the why from this incredible folk. And so today I say to us, let's not forget the why in our spirituality. It starts right here in worship as we are inspired and it moves to our families, to our neighborhoods, in our careers. And so I just want to invite you as we close, I just want to say a prayer for you.